And there were some parts of it that I cried my eyes out writing too. So I think on the other side of it, it's it's trying to give yourself the space for what happens when you released a creative thing and it changes you and giving yourself that space to change and grow. And I became a person with less of a filter in certain ways, less of a must present certain image in front of everyone. Being that vulnerable brought me to a very raw place and made me more honest and giving myself the room to do that. I'm still like in the process of learning that. Part of why creating and putting art into the world is so hard is because there's always a lesson to be learned on the other side. And there's usually more than one. So in a way, the very act of creating is also a surrendering to the idea that there's room to grow. But we have to be willing to give ourselves the space to do so. I love that Amina is willing to talk about the other side of releasing her creative work because it's not always an easy place to walk. We talk about this and so much more this week on The Story Podcast. While story invites us to ask powerful questions, your life and your story are shaped by the questions you ask. Where is your curiosity pointing? What is the story that you ache to tell? The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. Rise up, artists. Your canvas is the consciousness of this generation. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. A few weeks ago, at a Story University event at a school outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, Kellen sat down with Story 2017 presenter Amina Brown. I'm a poet. That's the most simple way, I would say it, which always brings about some interesting replies. Like follow-up questions? Either people are like, so you're broke. (laughs) Did they they really (laughs) say that to you? Or they just start asking questions that lead you to believe that they are wondering how you eat food. (laughs) It's just, I don't, it's like a line of questions of like, oh, wow, that's nice. So, but what do you do for a living? though like there might be like a follow-up question about that or mm-hmm. like where do you live and you can tell they don't really mean the city they mean like with your parents oh, or wow. you live in a house with like seven other people like so how do you respond to that I'm always like um yeah I, this is my full-time job <laughs> that's awesome mostly and then and then I think their minds are like why are you doing that for a living and I don't know who you are then I'm mm-hmm. like well it's mostly in a lot of faith-based environments some you know corporate environment so it's not like I'm on television or something you know but people are just they're very judgy about you being a poet that's so interesting (laughs) (laughs) and although the people that meet Amina may not fully understand what she does she is an incredible author spoken word poet and speaker who mixes humor and storytelling to create spaces for vulnerability and empathy Let's begin where we often begin here on the Story Podcast, at the beginning of Amina's story of her foray into writing. Well, I'd love to go back to the beginning and talk about how you even came to discover poetry and how you came into this world of writing. 
Yeah, I grew up in a house full of books. My mm. mom read a lot. And so just by nature of her having such a big library, I grew up reading a lot. And I just loved the idea of like the power that like someone could write this, that I like stayed up really late trying to read to the next chapter in a book, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So I read a lot of uh, Maya Angelou and Nikki Giovanni, Sonia Sanchez growing up, read a lot of those poets, uh, James Walton Johnson, Paul Robeson, did a lot of that. And I competed in speech competitions Ooh. when I was in high school where I would memorize the poems of other poets, never won. Why do you think that is? Always got third place. I don't know why, but I'm gonna tell you what my mom thinks about it. <laughs> and my yes. mom thinks it's because I wouldn't do my own work. I started writing my own poems outside of class when I was around 12 or so. And my mom had a rule in her house that there is no privacy, that whatever she finds, she reads it. Your journal, your notes from school, whoever you're writing to. I mean, this is me telling my age here <laughs> that we were literally writing notes to each other. Oh, I did too. You had to fold them all cool. Yeah. <laughs> you had to write pull. On yes. the one where you could like pull the tab Absolutely. and it opened up. This is like a big thing right here. So yeah, because of that, she read some of my work and she was like, I love what you're writing. Mm -hmm. I think it's so beautiful. Why don't you ever compete with these? And I was like, nobody likes these, but you mom. So my mom submitted one of my poems to a competition my last year of high school. Without you knowing? Without me knowing. And this is like me as a shy, withdrawn kid. Like the fact that I was even doing a speech competition is a pretty big deal, but mm -hmm. I would never have shared my own work up there. No. So she submitted it to this competition. If it won, you had to go there. And in order to receive your award or whatever, mm -hmm. you had to perform the piece. So the competition thing, the award ceremony is like on a Saturday. She tells me like on a Wednesday that I won, <gasps> that she had submitted this thing that I won. And I had to go there Saturday. Those people were going to be like waiting for me. And my mom is not the kind of mother that you tell her you're not going to that so I went and I fell in love with it wow so how did that first performance go it went well in a way that felt very crazy to me because I was 17 years old mm -hmm. and I'm there performing this poem that I've written in my room there were adults there it was more adults than kids and the adults were like leaning in when I was talking and that is like that was the scary moment for me and maybe scary is the wrong word but just a moment of knowing like whatever this is is bigger than you because you don't have enough to say at 17 years old that these grown people should be leaning into it that there's some sort of spiritual element to the gift that you have sure you know wow that's really cool shout out to my mom so what were you writing about at 17 um so Shout out to the movie Love Jones. <laughs> I I don't know what because that is. in 1996 there was a movie called Love Jones that came out. Okay, it was starring Lorenz Tate and Neil Long. This was a black romantic film, and Lorenz Tate plays a spoken word poet in the movie. So there's like a whole generation wow. of people who became spoken word poets because they were watching him do this in the movie. So my first spoken word poem is called Chocolate Mista. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> but it's M-I-S-T-A to be clear. <laughs> Thank you for that. Mista. And <laughs> I'm not going to post the links, but it's on the interwebs. Oh. If people are that curious about knowing what it says, mm -hmm. I'm not going to lead you to it because I don't want to. 
but I'm just telling you it's available somewhere out there on the interwebs. All right. There you go. You heard it right here on Story <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> I love that. So you performed at Story last year mm-hmm. and it was amazing. And then we actually just got done talking to some college students and um, I loved a lot of what you had to say. And one of the one of my favorite things that we talked about was discipline because I think um, – there's some struggle with figuring out that discipline and what it looks like for everyone. So tell us a little about what your what rituals you might have or routines you might have in order to make yourself right and do the work. I think I, I fought that idea for so long because it just seemed so unsexy mm-hmm. to be disciplined and creative. It just seemed more like I should be somewhere like sipping this expensive tea and all the inspiration would come down to me. So I think for a long time, particularly in my early to mid 20s, I just fought that idea so bad. I was trying everything besides, you know, bunkering down, Mm -hmm. right, and just getting disciplined. But I read uh, Twyla Tharp's book, Creative Habit. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend that. And she was one of the first creatives I really heard describing that creativity can also be a habit and a discipline. It is not something where you have to wait for inspiration to hit you. You can actually set up disciplines in your life that you could find inspiration at any time. So that actually freed me to go, okay, well, it's not bad as a creative if I need to sit in my desk in this way, in this position while I listen to this and write these things, you know, or it's not bad if when I'm working on a writing project, I have to commit to getting up at a certain time and writing it every day or however many days a week. Or we talked about, you know, having to have that routine when I worked a corporate job and I couldn't do my creative writing during the day. So I had to have the discipline to decide what days of the week I would commit to doing my writing that way. So I think it's better to stop fighting that and to let the discipline work for us Mm -hmm. and build us. And if you're going to really, you know, do what it is you want to do creatively, you can't really create anything without discipline. Yeah, I love that. And her slide said, discipline is not a dirty word. Yeah. I love that. It was so funny. <laughs> I would love to dive into some of what your book's about. You just came out with a book. Yeah. But last fall? Well, yeah, last fall, last okay. November. Yeah. And what's the name of it? Uh, the book is called How to Fix a Broken Record, Thoughts on Vinyl Records, Awkward Relationships, and Learning to Be Myself. I love that. <laughs> what did you learn while writing the book? Oh, man. It's so crazy that you're asking me that because- Writing a book, first of all, is very hard. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to say that out loud for anybody <laughs> listening to this, because when I had a dream of writing a book, I did not imagine it was going to be as hard as it is. So it's very hard. So you're really proud of yourself when you make it to like, I have finished a book. And then you're proud when you're like, and the book has released. Since the book has released, it's like there are other lessons that have come with it, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think one thing the book taught me is the power of telling a vulnerable story. Mm. There are a couple of stories in the book that I told that are not the finished happy ending I would have loved to tell. And we love those stories, right? Mm Because we get a little bit of the glory right there. Like, here's these terrible things that happened to me, but look at this person I am today that has survived those things. And it's different to say, like, man, life's been real hard in some places. And it still is. And I don't know if or when it will get easier in this area. There were a couple of stories I told like that, Mm. that I learned the power in sharing that 
that there are a lot of other people stuck in that middle ground. Absolutely. And I think that's that's where art is relatable. And I mean, we talked about that today, actually, with your piece, Dear TV Sitcoms, just like about how art can sometimes make or paint life in this light of like everything ends up okay. And sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. How do you how do you deal with that? Cry, um, <laughs> eat chocolate and carbs, reasons why I have to work out so I can get an ab because I want y'all to know that Kellen came up to do the Q&A and then she was like, let's just sit on the stage. And I want y'all to know that where the stage was, you need core strength in order to hop your hips up on the stage. So these are reasons why I'm trying to do these, you know, workouts. You did it so gracefully though. So I can get prepared, bless. But it's it's hard. I think... Um, I think now looking back on it, I'm really proud of myself for writing that. Mm-hmm. I think I was not in any way prepared for how it feels when you release a vulnerable thing into the world. And the book had the plus points for me of being fun to write in a lot of places, you know, because I wanted a book that would hopefully be helpful to people, but also be an entertaining read that you would get to the end and go, oh, I feel like satisfied having yeah. read this book, you know? So there were a lot of funny parts to it that I loved writing, that I laughed my head off, you know, <laughs> writing those things. And there were some parts of it that I cried my eyes out writing too. So I think on the other side of it, it's it's trying to give yourself the space for what happens when you've released a creative thing and it changes you. Mm. and giving yourself that space to change and grow. And I became a person with less of a filter in certain ways, less of a must present certain image in front of everyone. Being that vulnerable brought me to a very raw place and made me more honest Yeah, and giving myself the room to do that. I'm still like in the process of learning that. That's awesome. That's a beautiful lesson. I read um, the first chunk of it a little bit about wanting your seat at the the cool kids table do you feel like you've been able to release some of that yeah and I think it's also redefining who the cool kids are Mm, that's good yeah because I think sometimes the cool kids always feel like people you think are cooler than you or that you have to impress or that you have to be a certain thing for them and more and more I've tried to focus on who is in my community that really believes in me and I believe in them and I learn from them. Like I can pick who gets to be at the table. And, you know, I mean, I don't know how high school is now, but in the 90s it was, you know, there were all the categories there. There were the goth, you know, with the black lipstick and black uh, everything, basically. Nail polish, uh, leather things, Doc Martens, whatnot they wore, and the athletes and the goody two shoes that, you know, everybody had like a category. Mm-hmm. And I think as you get older and you become an adult, you realize like, let's just squash all those categories because whatever category we were all in, we felt super insecure and just wanted people to like us, you know? Yeah. So I feel like I, I love the idea of the, of the table where the cool people can be. Mm-hmm. I just think it should be less restricted, yeah. more open, I guess, more inviting. Yeah. A hundred percent. Do you think there's anything that us as artists and storytellers can help with that? Because I think that it still is a thing. Even, I mean, I just turned 30 and I still think there is this like facade of like, I want to hang out with them. Like, well, how do I get to that when there's, there is no getting to hang out with them? It is finding your people and the people that you want to champion and they're championing you. But is there like a way that artists and storytellers can help, I don't know, break that barrier down that we're having? You know what I mean? Yeah. uh, A mentor of mine 
he told me this story about Intazaki Shange, who is the woman who wrote the choreo poem uh, for Colored Girls. So I've considered suicide when the rainbow was enough, which also became a Broadway production. She's a fantastic writer. And he said he was in a room where she was doing a Q&A and someone asked her, you know, you have all these famous friends and you're collaborating with them. And, you know, how did that happen for you? And she said they weren't famous when they became my friends. Mm. She said we were all, you know, struggling and doing whatever we could to collaborate and work together. And we really watched our rise together. Mm -hmm. And I loved that story because that always encourages me to look around at the people that are right around me. I mean, I would love for Issa Rae and Beyonce and Solange <laughs> and Yvonne Orji to come and have dinner at my house. And maybe one day they will. Yeah. But I also have fabulous artists who are my friends, who are brilliant. And I have a chance to collaborate with them anytime. Yeah, you know, that's cool. I love that. I used to work at a music camp and um, the director would always say, you know, in the, the big assembly, look to your right, look to your left. These are the people that are going to help you get where you're going. Yep. So, yeah, that's, that's good. I think that we can all struggle with wanting a place at the so-called cool kids table, whether that's with people that are more successful than us or just with those that seem to have things that I'm working towards. But Amina is right. We don't get very far alone. And when we surround ourselves with the right people, we become our own version of the kind of table that we want to be a part of. Kellen and Amina went on to talk about working with an editor and dealing with criticism, something that as artists, we all have to learn how to receive. I loved your story that you told from college about yeah. your first... <laughs> <laughs> about my professor. Yes. I still kept these papers. I was telling a story about how uh, our papers had to be double-spaced, and my professor wrote two sentences, two lines of red in between my double-spaced type sentences of basically telling me... She, it was like she never came out and just said, these things you write are terrible. She was almost telling me that my writing was mediocre, that she knew that I could do better, that mm -hmm. I was sort of lazy and sort of resting on the laurels of the way I thought I could in a flowery way put words together. So I was telling a story that she had asked me like 60 questions on one of my, these are papers that are like maybe two pages. So we're not even talking wow. about like these 10, 13, 20 page papers, this lady. I mean, to be honest, we only got like two of our papers back the whole semester. So I don't know, because it's obviously took her a long time grading, right? Yeah. To get this stuff back to us. But it taught me, I think, the power of like asking yourself better questions when you write. And mm -hmm. I think I think a good writer uh, can be a great writer with a good editor. And I think book writing has taught me the power of having a good editor and that can be hard. I think it's this tension you have to sit in of knowing that the editor's job is to look at your work objectively. They get to stand back from it. These are not people they know. Um, mm -hmm. These are not their personal stories or their personal work or however. They are looking back to say, is the story complete? Like my first editor, I remember him writing on my uh, manuscript of my book, you didn't tell the full story here tell the rest of the story here. And you're like, this was, this is, this is my book. <laughs> I'm like, you don't tell me. But then I look back at it and thought, 
he's right. There's some places I'm hiding there. Mm. And so learning that some of those, that's the best thing an editor can do for you is ask you the hard questions and make you answer in your writing. I would say at the same time, learning where there are places where this is my voice and I'm not going to edit that. Mm. Um, there was a reference in my book where I referenced Netflix and chill <laughs> and I just left it yeah. like that. And uh, one of, in the rounds of editing, some questions came up, like, do you mean to use this phrase? And when you use this phrase, does it mean you endorse, condone these things? Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm going to leave that like that because it's a fun phrase right now. So people, you know, that know it right now will laugh. But I like that there's a time capsule that somebody <laughs> might read that book 10 years from now and be like, what's Netflix? <laughs> Isn't that crazy to think about? Like yeah. 50 years from now, who knows what they're going to think about our generation. <laughs> right. So I'm like, I want to leave you a couple of things in my book that you have to go Google or whatever will mm -hmm. be their version of that a hologram or whatever yeah. they'll do and be like, <laughs> what does she mean by necklace and chill? Oh, um, yeah. but I love that because that's real to you in your life right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, I'm going to ask this question that actually someone asked you today because I, I loved your answer to it. What do you love about what you do? Oh my gosh, that was such a great question. Mm -hmm. I was like, I love so many things about <laughs> it. I love meeting all these different people. I actually grew up as a military kid. So it's kind of funny. Maybe that was all preparation for me doing this where you're moving all the time. You're always having to meet new friends. You're meeting people from all different walks of life. And that's totally what I love about doing this for a living. We don't have a regular work team, you know, outside of us and, you know, our team that works with us and literary agent and booking agent and things like this. But every place we go, every event we're a part of, we get to like gel with that work team for the time we're with them. And I love that. I love yeah. like getting to talk to people afterwards. And I love getting to laugh. I love that I've been invited in. So I get to sometimes say things that the people who are there would never say because they get in trouble, mm -hmm. but I can say it. And then they're like, yes, thank you <laughs> for saying that. Thank you for bringing that up, you yeah. know, but then I'm going home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you don't have to deal with anything yeah. else. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you saying that being able to bring something up, what narrative in our culture right now do you are you working towards trying to shift through your stories and poems? Hmm. Um, I mean, I, this makes me think about Black Panther a bit, but I feel like one of the narratives that's important to me as a black woman telling mm -hmm. stories is that my stories are important, that they are fully and completely human mm. and that they deserve for me to tell them. Yeah. And any opportunity I have to make sure other people, particularly marginalized people, get to tell their stories in their own voice, um, that that's super, super important. I mean, seeing the movie Black Panther made me think, this is an unapologetically black story and a very human story. It is, it was, there were so many parts about it that were just set up in the plot as normal. They were not set up with any like message, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. like this overt, like, please pay attention to this message we're trying to put out here. They unfolded it like this is a normal story. It's human. Mm. And that's, that's what I hope I'm able to shift in the work I do. Yeah. I love that. Um, you talked earlier today about how you only can write to John Coltrane. <laughs> a little bit of Miles Davis. Okay. I can do it's, it has to be that like genre that not that that time in jazz after bebop but before 
like this fusion jazz got weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So when you sit down to write, what what do you do? You you put on the music, you light yeah. a candle, you like and you just kind of put get, on music. Do you zen out like what? I put on music. I normally put on the Coltrane first because I have like a playlist. My favorite things is actually my favorite John Coltrane song. It's like okay. 13 minutes long. Not the three minute. That one doesn't count. The 13 minute, <laughs> 45 second version of John Coltrane is my favorite things. I put that on. I open up my free write and I write about how much this will be bad and it will suck. <laughs> Just whatever my insecurities are. Like I can't create if I don't get the insecurities out. Mm. I always laugh because even though I'm married to an artist, my husband's also a DJ and music producer, musician, but I am more of the tormented artist between the two of us. So I am the person that would write a thing and then be like, this might be the worst thing I have ever written. And it's not even as good as the other thing I wrote because... I don't know if I'm ever going to write a thing as good as that. Like I'm that artist. My husband creates a piece of music, immediately comes downstairs. This is the best thing that I've ever made. Wow. This is the best thing I've ever created, right? So I have to get my insecurities out. I do the free write first to get my insecurities out of the way. And then I write. And with poems, it's really a bunch of waiting because <laughs> you don't get to control when the poem shows up. When I'm doing book writing, I can kind of do like hit a thousand words today, hit 1500 words today. Poems don't work like that. So some of it's just waiting like, oh, please, will you, please, will you show up today? <laughs> That's so interesting. So how do you deal, like, is there tension between you and your husband with that, with him being like, like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, especially when we have to collaborate, that gets fascinating oh, because we have two very different creative processes mm -hmm. and we view the outcome differently. Like being a writer, I think I'm always into the drafting. So whatever project I'm on, I'm always like, we need to come up with an initial idea so we can go back and rethink it and make it better. So we can go back and rethink and make it better. Like I'm always yes. uh -huh. sort of layering the process that way. And my husband creates a lot more quickly than I do. So he could totally make something and be like, and that's good. And you're like, but. And I'm like, but we need to go back and think about it. We need to go back and listen to it. And what about the fine tooth comb? And did we use the brush? And I, you know, <laughs> whatever those tools are. So yes. we've had to learn in our collaborating to use each other's strengths that way. Mm -hmm. So there are some ways that like he helps me to like stop working on a piece and like let it go to the next part of the process. Like stop nitpicking with yeah. it. Yeah. And then I've helped him to like go back and take some listens and like change some things. But we have had to learn to give each other that space because I definitely wanted to walk in and be like, no, this is not how you make things. But he's like, I've been making things like this <laughs> forever, you yeah. know? Yeah. Kellen had one final question for Amina and her answer is my favorite nugget of creative wisdom of this entire interview. Then to top it all, she finishes with a beautiful piece of spoken word poetry. I can't wait for you to hear it, but I don't want you to miss knowing that you can have full access to Amina's Story 2017 presentation on our StoryCraft site. I simply cannot express to you how jaw-dropping her presentation was at Story this past year. It was a blend of spoken word and soul-filled creative genius that will leave you standing up and clapping at your phone or a computer whenever you watch it. Just go to storycraft.co and select premium membership. You'll have access to Amina's video and tons of other inspiring premium content. Again, just go to storycraft, that's storycraft with a C dot co, C-O. And now here's some creative advice from Amina as you play your role in the world as a storyteller. 
I have thousands of things I want to tell you. I have so many things. <laughs> I feel like the main thing that's been on my heart right now that I would say to creatives and storytellers is find ways to create things because you want to. I think particularly for those of us that sort of work in this freelance, entrepreneurial, startup mm -hmm. uh, kind of world, uh, we end up creating a lot of things for our jobs or different clients we have, but find a way to make something just because you want it to, because yeah. it's fun, because I think that helps you to remember why you wanted to do whatever you're doing in yeah. the first place. Do you have to intentionally create space for that right now? Yeah, I think it kind of helps me with being a poet because the poems show up whether you plan that they would or not. Mm -hmm. So sometimes like some of my last poems, they've just, I'll be somewhere. I think I was at a Kamasi Washington show and like this poem showed up at the show mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, you know, takes notes, you know. Yeah. So that's sort of how I end up letting the work kind of lead me and go. What else do you want to be? Now that you've showed up with seven lines, what else can you be? Mm. But that goes in seasons for me. I have seasons when I write and then I have seasons when I don't. I have to wait for that kind of creative thing to come back around. I love that. You want to do a piece for us? I will. Actually, that piece that I was uh, starting when I went to see Kamasi, I'll do a couple of stanzas oh, I love of that. this. That's awesome. Um, Kamasi Washington has a song called Rhythm Changes. And there are only two or three artists that I've cried at their show, and he is one of them. Really? Kamasi Washington, Thundercat. I can't even remember the third one now, but those two were the most recent that I was in the show. Like, I love everything. <laughs> I love that music. Yeah, I like feel the feelings. So in the, in the song Rhythm Changes, Kamasi is writing about this idea that no matter what happens, I'm here, that I am where I am whether good things happen, whether bad things happen. And for me, the last season of my life, it's been great in a lot of ways and it's been really hard in some others. And I think when the new year came in, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm here. Like that was hard, might still be hard in a lot of ways, but I'm here. So I'll read a couple of stanzas um, of this. Look out across the devastation and see the life the fire missed. See the seeds always teaching us how and when and where to start over how to experience death and bring things back to life, how to poke a limb through the dirt, how to soak up rain, how to search for sun, how to grow a spine so strong that it bends through wind and storm but does not break, how to turn the veins of your palms up, how to preen and dance and find the light, how to study your trunk, limbs, branches, trace the scars and find them grooves, how your body is a quilt, how your skin is a storyteller, how your wrinkles and folds are a map uncolonized, how you found your North Star, somewhere between your collarbone and your ribcage, how your voice becomes a stream that always finds its river, how your feet do not fear a path never traveled, how your bones sing freedom, how they whisper, remember, you are here, breathing. Hear the rest of the story and get additional creative inspiration, visit storygatherings.com slash podcast. This episode was produced by Harris III. It was mixed by Chad Michael Snavely and music was written by Aaron Farmer. The Story Podcast is a production of Astoria Collective. Thank you for listening.